Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. I'm Scott Reedley. And this is another episode of the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back. This is, I don't know how many episodes in, we're in 60-something. We've Almost we've, 60, I think. Almost 60. Well, we're, we're kind of ahead, so. Well, we're more than we <laughs> thought we would ever be, probably, when we started. How many are we going to do? Uh, we're going to do about four, and then we'll be done. No, that's, there, there's plenty to talk about. And, and one of the things we often talk about in this show is uh, just just fear about the potential decline of Christianity or um, just some of the ways people talk about it. Uh, the sky is falling, maybe some chicken little type tendencies. And I don't know how many times we've referenced that kind of thing in episodes. You can always just go back and listen to other episodes. Uh, go, to, go to our <laughs> website and check that out. Um, yeah, that's right. You do the work. Uh, we're, we're done. You just done. go back. There. This is just an episode to remind you. We've talked about things you should listen to and now we're done. <laughs> Leave a review. No, so um, rather than talk about that kind of uh, current, maybe emotional posture or whatever it is, it might be good to talk about how did how did Christianity rise? How did Christianity start? Um, what if if the conditions we can presume are favorable, or maybe just recently were favorable, and now they're becoming less favorable? Um, what what were the conditions like when the when Christianity started? Um, was it super favorable? Was everything peaches and roses at the beginning of Christianity, Scott? Is that how this started? And, and now finally, after 2,000 years, it's becoming difficult? Well, I'm sure there were some people trying to raise funds in the first century who probably told uh, you know, 120 Christians or so that the sky was falling and they needed to support their cause or else they would have some kind of uh, trouble with the future of Christianity. But uh, probably that's not the case because the funny thing about this is that we're worried about the future of Christianity, that things are going to turn out so that the church will, will fail or will be less successful, when in effect, at the very beginning, the situation, you might say, in the world was far worse than it is right now. Mm. Oh my goodness, I mean, far worse. And it was in that environment that the church actually thrived. Now, I'm not, I'm not hoping we go back to the first century so that the church will thrive, Mm-hmm. But I'm also not afraid that uh, something might go wrong with the government or something might ro- go wrong in the world or there might be a recession and therefore the church would be on the precipice of uh, you know, dissolution or something. That's not what's going to happen with Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I think that this mostly comes up when you hear Christians talk about the government and what they might call the war on Christianity. And uh, I... I think Flagrant. I Flagrant. think we're going to be okay, um, because that's um, and, and the reason I think that is is like you mentioned there, it'd be helpful to get some historical perspective. If you have some historical perspective, you're not going to be near as worried about this mm. as you would be if your only comparison was you know th- maybe three years ago before there was a pandemic 
and the church seemed full and now it doesn't seem full and oh dear you know what are we going to do which may be a different podcast that that piece that is not but even then i'm not going to worry about it even then there's no cause for alarm and one of the most encouraging books that i've read about this is called the rise of christianity by a sociologist named rodney stark and He's written several of the books, uh, other books, and a couple of them I will uh, include in the show notes because they are very similar to this. But what he did was he took a sociological look at the growth of the early church, and he asked the question, what was it about the world in which the church found itself that provided the environment for the church to grow and thrive so that within a few hundred years it overtook the Roman Empire? Now, I mean, let that sink in, so that in a few hundred years it overtook the Roman Empire. That's incredible. Yeah, and so he believes the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity legal, was not uh, some favored status for the church, but it was a political maneuver by Constantine based on the growth of the church and his political um, in, in instincts maybe, to survive mm. uh, as a politician when the church was thriving like it was. So uh, what Stark uses uh, conservative, he calls them conservative numbers. It depends on kind of how you define that term. But he postulates that the numbers were actually smaller than the New Testament would suggest. To me, that doesn't sound conservative on the one hand, but but it is conservative in that his He's numbers are smaller. He's just with small numbers. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, he suggested that if Christianity started with 1,000 people in 40 AD, okay, and, you, and you'll recognize— Which is by at least, least 2,000 too small in seven years. <laughs> by Acts, yeah, according to Acts uh, chapter 2, right? But if it started with 1,000 and it increased by 40% per decade, which would only be 3.42% a year, so he's— He's doing sociology numbers, right? It's like APR right, right there, yeah, mortgage so APR. 3.42% a year that you would end up in 350 AD with almost 34 million Christians, which is over 56% of the Roman population. And so in 350 years, more than half of the Roman population was Christian, at least according to his speculation here, which is why then that the Edict of Milan made Christianity uh, legal. So, And it makes more sense that it'd be a political response that 56% of people... You better figure oh, that shoot, out. Oh, shoot, better figure this out. <laughs> and can we, can we paint the initial, like that AD 40, AD 33 picture a little bit just to point out how odd it is that anything happened at all? I just, I, I read, I have a great books group at the library, mm-hmm. and we've been reading great books together for three years now, and we just got to the New Testament. It, okay. it happened to land this week, which is Easter week. So oh, we, we read Luke and we read Acts. Not, no, I canceled so many because of the pandemic. I didn't plan this at all. Um, but we just read Luke and Acts, and, and I've read Luke and Acts a lot, but I read it in the context of uh, we're reading Homer, then we're reading um, Aristotle and Plato and all these different things. So I read Luke and Acts, and all of a sudden, after reading so much history of Rome, how peculiar peculiar it is that this guy Jesus dies and this little conceivably Jewish sect, like some offshoot of Ju- Judaism, um, 
starts proclaiming this crazy message that this guy Jesus that the Romans killed uh, rose from the dead. And they're this little sect in this um, uh, oppressed country in the middle of the Roman Empire. And within short order, you have Paul going all the way to Rome proclaiming this message, and people left and right are, are saying, yeah, I'm, I believe this message. It's just, mm-hmm. it's insane. Yeah, I mean, the, the odds of it would be uh, quite slim. Yes. In part, because you had this happen, they had, this happened all the time. I mean, there were uprisings, there were people proclaiming they were the new leader, yeah. this and that, all the time. And um, here you have Jesus uh, rising from the dead and changing a very small number of people by our estimations. I mean, that the number that he starts off with is smaller than many churches today. Oh, yeah. And he starts that with the only Christians in the Roman Empire. And so he, he gives several reasons, and I'm just going to kind of go through them uh, little by little, and hopefully it will make some sense. And, and, and I hope, too, that as we do this, it will be the kind of thing that uh, just makes everyone able to take a deep breath and say, you know what, we don't need to worry about the future of Christianity, and we can, we can trust that the, if, if the Lord uh, could do it, if the, if the Spirit could empower the church in the first century, uh, it'll be okay um, mm. now. So uh, one of the things that uh, he suggests is that Christianity, that, that new religious movements do best in places where there is the greatest amount of apparent secularization. And so there was, it was cosmopolitan, and there was, uh, there were all kinds of people passing through, and it was not in any way at like, you know, ancient Israel when it was all about the temple and things. It was, mm. um, it was a different environment, and certainly in Rome, it was a different environment. And so, you know, just that statement, though, that religious movements do best in places where there's the greatest amount of apparent secularization ought to encourage us because that's what everyone worries about. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, our country's becoming so secular. Well, great. You know, wait till they hear about Jesus. Mm. That will be great. But, um, you know, he, uh, he talked then about how those people with irreligious backgrounds would hear about the resurrection and hear about Jesus and would convert to you know, new religious movements like Christianity. And it was through their interpersonal attachments that uh, they would hear about it, and then they would become attached to non-family members, and then those attachments would become strong in the church, and they built communities that were solid and strong. And those communities, in a world where you didn't have safety nets, in a world where you didn't have a mm. lot of things that we have, that made a huge difference uh, as far as the success of those people part of those who were mm. part of those communities. And when they became more successful, then, of course, Christianity flourished and spread. The other thing he notes, which is a little counterintuitive and something we don't hear about too much, is that he, he suggests that Christianity was probably heavily driven by proletariat or upper-class conversion. In other words, they were more secular than the lower class. In other words, those who were oppressed or uh, suffering probably tended to be more religious just to survive. And so they converted more slowly than those who were um, 
upper class and had more leisure to consider new ideas and consider other things. And so one of the things that he notes is that there's some evidence that Christianity um, uh, was uh, embraced by uh, several uh, upper class people and spread in the upper class mm. and then trickled down, which I, I think is kind of interesting. But be that as it may, that's one of his, um, one of his tenets is that it spread maybe in a way that we didn't think that it would. It spread through relationships and then it spread really through relationships in this upper crust environment throughout the Roman Empire. And is that kind of like, I'm just picturing some of the stories of uh, people interacting with Jesus in the Gospels and the, the ruler comes and, and talks to Jesus. That kind of um, that kind of relationship, and then obviously, if the ruler, if the ruler believes in Jesus, then the influence that that ruler has. Well, probably not so much the influence on the people below as it is those other people who are in his peer group. Mm. He would travel in that, you know, uh, echelon, you might say, and then how much trickle down we don't really know, but it did travel mm. there. You know, I was even in preparing for Easter Sunday morning when I'm going to talk about Mary Magdalene. Mm. who was essentially going to pay whatever it took for the gardener to go get the body of Jesus and, you know, let her give him a proper burial. Turns out that gardener was Jesus himself, so it didn't, <laughs> it didn't go quite like she planned. But, um, but she was going to be able to do that, and she was probably a patron, and there were several women even who were patrons, which means they were women of means. And I think there were people of means that— um, hosted church meetings and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the places that Christianity spread. And you see that quite a bit in the New Testament, uh, in such and such house where where the church meets, mm-hmm. and some hostess often who's hosting a church service or community. Yeah, and there are, you can read that, and there are several notes that uh, either Paul leaves for us or Luke leaves for us or somebody and they'll just greet somebody who's a pro-council or mm. greet somebody who's this or that, um, inherits household, or mm-hmm. they'll have some other kind of a thing, and they'll just make a quick note of it. But that did happen, and it's even reflected in the New Testament. So that's one thing. The other thing is that he uh, suggested that the, um, that the mission to the Jews, this would be a second thing, uh, Christianity was a Jewish sect at the beginning. Everyone at least thought it was. And um, the the thing that happened was that it began with the Jews and then later um, was able to spread and be a monotheistic religion uh, that was stripped of ethnicity. In other words, mm. the, you, you can read your New Testament and it's everywhere, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. All through the book of Romans, all through the uh, Ephesians that that really what Jesus has done is to unite Jews and Gentiles and create a, um, a uh, body or a community that is not uh, ethnic. And so it began ethnically and then successfully jumped the ethnic rails, I think would be the thing that he would, mm. uh, that'd be one of the ways that he might talk about it. Uh, because it was... It, you know, it was the ethnic barrier that prevented Judaism from serving as some kind of basis for revitalization of the Roman Empire. And what, it was the ethnic basis that 
where that caused them to be persecuted and that sort of thing. Whereas uh, Christians believe many of the same things, but we're able to uh, jump the rails on ethnicity such that they had uh, a unique belief system and a unique community that was not based on ethnicity. Mm. So, and during this time, the uh, especially in the Roman Empire, you would have regional gods, really, and and ethnically, there's there's the Jewish piece which we just talked about, but in general, uh, what some Roman come Rome comes in and conquers some locale, and who's your god? Okay, you can worship them, but you also got to worship Rome Caesar. over here, Caesar. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it would have been known that okay, who's your god? You're, you're a new people. Which god do you serve? Um, so there's something that is, is welcoming, but also uh, immediate contrast as well to what's going on in the ancient Near East at that time. Well, it is interesting that uh, I think that Christianity was able to travel mm-hmm. through the empire, whereas other, you know, other religions didn't. Mm-hmm. They, they stayed, like you said, in the locale where it was conquered or whatever. And the Christianity be, be, became political in that King Jesus challenged Caesar. Right. The, the deity of Jesus challenged the deity of Caesar, and therefore, uh, that, I mean, in some regard, that's what got Jesus crucified. Mm-hmm. But that was also, uh, it also kind of made it less um, provincial, mm. you might say, in the empire. So those are, those are a couple things that are, uh, in some respect, maybe not that uh, central. The, the ones, though, that I think are super fascinating— are the ones that are coming up here. The, the next thing that he notes uh, are uh, the role that epidemics played in the um, uh, Christianization of the Roman Empire. Mm. I mean, we just had one, or you know, some people might say we still have one, I don't know. But we, we just have an one. epidemic. We just we definitely had, have an epidemic. I don't know about a pandemic. Yeah. Anyway, well, we just had we just had one, you know, and it was uh, nobody liked it and Everyone would say, oh, that was terrible for Christianity. But that wasn't how the early church viewed it. They had epidemics all the time, and uh, some disease uh, would come, and some plague would come into a city, and what would happen is that people get very sick, and they get sick, and others who didn't get sick would flee, and mm-hmm. they would leave family members, they would leave uh, friends, they'd leave their neighbors, and they would go to another town that didn't have the plague, in order to be safe. But the Christians then would step in to the, and nurse the sick and care for those who were not, um, who were afflicted by the plague. And some of those people would get better. And when they got mm-hmm. better and they were uh, treated by Christians uh, in that way and introduced to Jesus, they would become Christians. And when those sick people became well and became Christians, and the only people left in the city were Christians who were caring for them, then essentially the whole city was Christian. And those people who fled the city then would come back to their previous home and find that everyone around them was Christian. And the city would be transformed just within a matter of weeks, perhaps. And that was, to me, that just was a super interesting Thing, which again, uh, would I would I desire another pandemic? No, thank you, or another epidemic. But what they did is they uh, the Christians made the most of it, and it was radically mm. 
uh, effective in the uh, growth and witness of uh, Christians. So that was, you know, that's one thing that I, I that he highlights that I think was really interesting. Um, well, that's, that's incredible. And I, I'm just picturing the guy. <laughs> you said a couple of weeks. I hadn't thought of it in a couple of weeks. I was thinking a couple of years. But I'm just picturing the guy coming back and, all right, it's Sunday. Let's go watch football. No, no, no. We go to church now. What? What? What is that? <laughs> like, no, the whole city. We all go to church now. <laughs> yeah, it would be a, it would be quite a shock, I would imagine. And it was, um, you know, I said a, a couple, you know, weeks or months. I don't know how long it took, but it, uh, it was a significant influence in the way that Christianity spread. Um, I, I was going to say something else about that, and now I don't remember it, but. But I think the other piece about that, I've, I've, I've known that pre this pandemic, I knew that that was the response of Christians, that they tended in, the, in, in history to stay with the sick, to care for those that would have been left behind or um, abandoned. And I knew that to be the case um, historically. And I remember thinking, even in, in March of 2020, like everything's locking down, okay, this is going to be a pandemic. I, I wonder how the church, I know how the church historically has responded. Mm -hmm. I wonder how the church will respond and what that will mean. Um, and I don't even know that we necessarily know the long-term uh, ramifications of how the church responded this time, right. but uh, it, it's it's comforting to know that uh, in the past, something like that had no uh, real long-lasting negative impact. It was it was positive. Yeah, it was opposite. And, and really throughout history then, as you go through, you know, go from here, uh, Christianity has always been at the forefront of medicine mm -hmm. and hospitals and uh, caring for the sick and wounded in that. Oh, so, yeah. And name that, I mean, any hospital you know, it's probably right. uh, uh, Portland Providence. Um, that's a whole Catholic network or legacy or um, all of our— Good Sam. Right. Where, where did good you get Sam. Good Sam from, yeah. I wonder? Interesting. That's yeah. the first hospital in, in Portland, so— so anyway, but that's, you know, Christianity has, has historically done that, but in the, in the beginning, that's where it was really uh, significant in the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Um, another thing that he highlights is the, the role of women or the, the Christian treatment of women mm. as the, the means by which the church grew. And... Um, I, I, I think it's, it's not going to be too hard to say that Christianity treated women differently and better mm. than the world around it did. And uh, you know, rather than women being treated like property, uh, they were held in high regard. They were protected and valued. There, there were not in the church, there were not double standards for double uh, mm. uh, sexual double standards for men and women. In other words, men could go do whatever they want, but women, you know, had to stand up there. Christians, Christians were uh, sexually faithful in marriage. Husbands kept their covenant and treated their wives with respect, which led, uh, which really did lead to the conversion of, uh, you know, many women mm -hmm. because that was a, it was a community that treated them better than the world around them did. And so they were not impoverished. They were not um, uh, treated as property. They were treated with respect. Well, that, you know, you might say, well, so. <laughs> so what that means is 
that the the church before long had more women uh, than it did men, and men women continued to uh, you might say accumulate to the church, which then had a because of disease, because of uh, just the awful medical care for women that um, they would try and practice, um, and women would die. There, if you wanted a wife, the best place to look was at the church. Well, <laughs> as soon as they, as soon as they began to look to the church for uh, to find women, well, you can imagine then that husbands would come in, and, or potential husbands would come in, mm-hmm. and the wives would say, "Well, let me tell you about Jesus," and then the men would come to um, um, become Christians. And so that was a compounding factor. And it was interesting that what was at stake there was the, the sexual ethic of the church was different mm. than the sexual ethic of the community. And that is, I think, some of the pressure the church is under today. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, that's, uh, that's one of the things that happened in the first century. So mm-hmm. we've seen this before. And it comes out favoring the church. Yeah. So the other thing that was interesting uh, related to that was that the church valued human life and treated children differently than the world around it did. And so uh, it was, uh, in fact, uh, this is just a quote from the book. Seneca uh, regarded the drowning of babies at birth as both reasonable and commonplace. Tacitus charged that the Jewish teaching that it is a deadly sin to kill an unwanted child was but another of their sinister and revolting practices. It was common to expose an unwanted infant out of doors where it could, in principle, be taken up by someone who wished to rear it, but where it typically fell victim to the elements or to animals or birds. Not only was the exposure of infants very common, it was justified by law and advocated by philosophers. Both Plato and Aristotle recommended infanticide as legitimate state policy. And so along comes, uh, he mentions the, the Jewish community, but along comes the church then. It ba- jumps the ethnic bounds and mm-hmm. treats uh, people with dignity and values human life and begins to, you know, number one, not abort or... Um, expose their children, and so they had more children. Mm. And then they would, uh, at times, rescue these children who were otherwise exposed or put out to to die. And so, again, then would adopt and Mm -hmm. accumulate more children. And then, um, if okay, that doesn't take very much imagination to say those two things, your, your children don't die by your own hand, and you save other people's children, and that becomes part of the, the church, then those, you know, the, the people outside of the church who are disposing of their children, then their numbers are relatively declining while the church is accumulating children right. and growing. You can see how this had a mathematical, sociological effect on the long-term future of the church. So, Anyway, I, I think that the church really needs to think about mm-hmm. that with regard to the kingdom of heaven and uh, foster care and adoption mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what it means to be the church in our uh, time and place because we have some of the same 
kind of issues. And that is one of the things that um, he highlights as a long-term uh, strategy <laughs> by which the church outstripped the Roman Empire. I just finished uh, a book titled Dominion by Tom Holland. He's a historian in Great Britain. And he, his, his, he was talking about a lot of the same stuff, but from a different angle. He was basically just showing Christ died, um, and the, the people who followed him say, say he rose again. So he, he's, uh, I think he'd call himself agnostic, but he was just describing um, the uh, great influence Christianity has had on every bit of, basically every bit of real estate of Western civilization since then. And as we just went through that last point, one of the things he mentioned is, yeah, nowadays we say, of course, equal treatment for women, um, they need to be um, treated the same way, they need to be taken um, taken care of. Uh, anyone that is uh, disadvantaged or um, or poor, even the very fact that we even have a foster care system, all of all of that is evidence of Christianity from the beginning. And where two thousand years ago it was um, an unexpected uh, benefit to the growth of the church, now it's just weaved into the fabric of how we even consider justice, mm -hmm. which I just think is is so fascinating. He described um, Christianity, specifically in the West, but Christianity being the the um, imperceivable dust particles. They're everywhere, and everyone is breathing them in and out, whether they agree with Christianity or not. It, it informs people's assumptions, and I think this, this point in particular is one uh, we're, we're nodding our heads along. Yes, of course, equal treatment. Of course, um, of course, we should treat women well. We should treat uh, the disadvantaged well. But that is not a given. If well, we go back to natural, it's not a given. It's not the way it was in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And it was that, you know, you might say the distinctive mark of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why the dust is now in the air, because right. the church did it contrary to the rest of the world at the very beginning. Uh, another thing that he highlights, and this for those of the people that are wringing their hands about what are we going to do, because the world is, you know, a mess, he suggests that urban chaos is one of the keys for the spread of Christianity. Okay, that's pretty much what we don't want. <laughs> but he says urban chaos is one of the keys for the spread of Christianity. And this is, uh, and some of this, he suggests, is doctrinal, which I think is very interesting. He is stark believes that Christianity offered a much more satisfactory account of why these terrible times had fallen upon humanity, and it projected a hopeful, even enthusiastic, portrait of the future. And so if you think about the gospel, the gospel does explain why things are terrible in a way that you can't explain it without the gospel. Mm. And the gospel also gives us hope for the future that you can't have apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And so... Uh, so there are doctrinal underpinnings, you might say, to this practical look at the world and outlook at the, for the world that was attractive to people when things were a mess. Um, you know, you mentioned that there there were local, you know, religions or local deities, and when you would have the people come into the um, the city, say into Rome or whatever there would be enclaves of ethnicity throughout. 
And uh, those belief systems and that didn't transfer across, you know, across the tracks, you might say, but rather they just were localized. And, you know, Christianity provided a worldview that did jump the tracks there and did come to, um, you know, from one ethnic group to another. And um, part of the reason it did that, and we've, we've mentioned it already, had to do with uh, charity or pity or um, their generosity mm. to the poor. Um, you know, here's a, just another quote from the book. It said, in the fourth century, the emperor Julian launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christians. Julian complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia in 362 that the pagans needed an, to equal the virtues of Christians, for recent Christian growth had caused was caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. In a letter to another priest, Julian wrote, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans, okay, that was their name for Christians, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. He also wrote, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lacked aid from us. Mm. And so that you know, that's just a real clear statement that it would <laughs> that everyone can see our people lacked aid from us, and the Christians came in and brought that aid. Uh, I'm sure at their own expense, mm -hmm. and that was part of the propulsion for the church in the midst of this kind of Roman Empire. So, um, anyway, that I, I think that is uh, also. Uh, an important one because there's all kinds of talk about uh, inflation and a coming recession and uh, urban chaos like this. And to realize that that isn't something to wring your hands over, but rather an mm. opportunity for the church is really magnificent, I think. Um, another um, uh, aspect of this uh, of the church overtaking the Roman Empire had to do with martyrs. Uh, he, he gives this some, um, some part of his book, but not as much as some people think, because he doesn't think that there was quite as much mart martyrdom as uh, we might, uh, might be in popular um, tradition or something. But, but the fact that people freely chose to be executed rather than renounce their faith— mm. Uh, made a big impact, and of course it did. I, I mean, who could not watch that and say, whatever they must, whatever they believe, it must be significant, right? And so that's you know that he attributes to um, part of the significant rise of Christianity. Well, if you've ever spent any time just reading some of those accounts, I'd I'd recommend reading. Um. It's the, it's the martyrdom of Polycarp. I can't remember what the actual... There's just a small account of it from, from way back that you can look up. I'm sure you could Google it and find it. But um, the the posture, the the language even that martyrs like Polycarp use when they're about to face death, and I just put that in the tension of... 
uh, we we're cons- we're concerned potentially about um, some potential decline of the church or some um, uh, removal of freedom potentially. Or it's even it's it's like hypothetical, and we're we get really uh, freaked out about it and concerned, and maybe we start talking about we're, we're going to engage this war against the church, and nothing's really happened to us. And the way Polycarp talks when he's actually facing death is just so striking. And I just want, I want that, this guy's character. I want his way of well, talking. What does he say? Tell us, I'm tell about us. to tell you. <laughs> um, but I, I want to say one more thing, because I, I think he's two generations, maybe one generation removed from John. I think that's right. What, so he basically learned from John, um, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And he's, he's walking to be martyred, and he's, he's praying to God on his way, and people heard him because you can read the account. And he said, bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that, that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And then as he's about to die, he says, 86 years. Well, and, and, they're, and they're pleading with him. Please do not, uh, please just denounce recount. Jesus, recount, recount. recount. and yeah. then we don't have to kill you. Um, they're, they're almost like rooting for him. It's like a weird thing. And he, he, he just has none of it. And he says, 86 years have I served him. Um, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When, when given an out, he's going, no way. Of course I won't do that. Um, and I just, I, I want that. I want, I want to be like that guy. He's just incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the Christians were. Uh, you can just read some of those old, 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 old stories about them uh, facing death rather than take the easy way out, and w- which wasn't even that hard. It wasn't, it wasn't a difficult ask. And they just say, no, I'm, I'm going to go this route instead. And that speaks volumes. And so, yes, people like Polycarp and others were part of the expansion of Christianity because of their uh, striking uh, and articulate witness. Another uh, aspect of the growth of Christianity had to do with their virtue. And um, this is, this is what... Uh, what Stark says about it, he says, let me state my thesis. Central doctrines of Christianity prompted and sustained attractive, liberating, and effective social relations and organizations. I believe that it was the religion's particular doctrines that permitted Christianity to be among the most sweeping and successful revitalization movements in history. And it was the way these doctrines took on actual flesh, the way they directed organizational actions and individual behaviors that led to the rise of Christianity. And so essentially it was the way that people put into practice what they believed that led to the rise of Christianity. Mm. Now imagine that, because that's exactly the way the New Testament's written, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, it says, you know, the, you... Um, you believe, but really you, you, you show your faith by your works, mm-hmm. and here you have it. And that's what uh, a sociologist understands to be the, um, the reason for the rise of Christianity. Um, you know, this, is, this is related to that, but it's back on the, the nursing, the sick and dying. And he says, the world uh, the Christians entered in the Greco-Roman era had a colossal void Uh, with respect to caring for the sick and dying. Thus, Christianity filled the pagan void uh, that largely ignored the sick and the dying, especially during pestilences. In so doing, it established the principle that to help the sick and needy is a sign of strength, not weakness. 
This Christ-motivated humanitarian behavior so admirably displayed by his early followers also introduced the notion that because God loves humanity, Christians cannot please God unless they love one another. Mm. As Rodney Stark says, this was revolutionary. So um, just the practical day-to-day living out in relationships and organizations of the attractive uh, doctrine of Christianity, he says, was part of what set it apart in the world. And if you, I mean, you don't have to look at very many other doctrines or practices of other ancient religions to realize, ooh, I don't want any part of those. Uh, Christianity was remarkably different Mm. in that regard. And then one other from a different book of his that I think is really interesting because it also relieves me of my hand-wringing. He wrote another book called The Cities of God, and and he tried in that book to understand what was it about cities and which cities did Christianity do the best in? or what, what cities accounted for the spread of Christianity. And he took a statistical analysis of the populations and of their religious um, inclinations and that sort of thing. And he realized that you were more likely to find a church in a city that had temples to pagan gods. And so if, if they had pagan god temples to pagan gods, then that was where Christianity went and thrived. And that was partly practical because those tended to be the bigger cities that tended to be on some kind of a, uh, either a, they were a port city or the roads went there. And so the bigger cities had uh, first the pagan temples. And then he said, because of that, though, then Christianity could travel those same roads and on those same ships and go to those same places. But uh, I would just say that Christianity does quite well when there's competition. And that, that would be the, my takeaway from the way that he organized that other book, The Cities of, the Cities of God, that when you have um, a pluralistic situation, that the church of Jesus Christ is just fine. Mm. And that what you have when you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead uh, is something that can't be copied by other religions and sets Christianity apart as uh, uh, a religion that not only has good doctrine, but has a living Savior mm. and who empowers his people to live differently in the world. And I, I just want to say, again, all these things are things that wring our hands over, right? Well, there's, what about these other religions? No problem. Okay. Mm. What, what about the what about the chaos and cities? No problem. You know what, what about all these other things? You know, it, it really turns out that Christianity is going to be just fine. And uh, I think that those people who are predicting that uh, Christianity is in trouble or that uh, you've got to take some maybe political action in order to save Christianity. Mm. Uh, I think they're just completely missing the point. And I think in some respect, the, the more stress there is, the more the church will thrive. But I'm not, I'm not advocating that we increase stress. Right. I, think, I think the world will take care of that. We're not taking a pro-stress policy position. Right. But I do think that uh, if that were to happen, the, the church will turn out just fine. Anyway, that's my quick review of uh, 
Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, and uh, um, he, and a couple others that he uh, has, uh, The Triumph of Christianity, how the, uh, the Jesus movement became the world's largest religion. And so he's got two or three of those, and I just found him not only interesting, but really, really encouraging, and the kind of thing that makes me not fearful about uh, the future. That's good. And it, in a, in a kind of weird way, um, well, in a weird way, it's kind of encouraging, but in another weird way, it's, it's a, um, confirmation that Jesus spoke truthfully. Just remembering in Matthew uh, 16, he tells Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We didn't even describe hell. <laughs> we just described something less than hell and the church mm-hmm. just went just fine. And, and Christ is building his church and very difficult situations or competition or um, broken environments or, or whatever have not uh, even put a governor on the speed at which uh, the church grows. Because well, Jesus is, is all about building his church. And, and, you know, really what we're trying to do here with City on a Hill is to say that the church is the city on the hill and that the, the kingdom of heaven will prevail. And what you, I, I think if there is a temptation to say we need to take political action so that the church will be better off, mm. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're looking at the wrong means, uh, I think rightly to a good end. We want the church to be well off, but uh, even when things are completely goofed up politically, the church does just fine. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't be, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be fearful and I wouldn't say that, oh, if only if only we had a different president, or if only we had a different vote, or if only we had a different policy, then the church, you know, it's the church is going to be fine. And you have, can have every confidence that Jesus will build this church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right, mm-hmm. Eric. Well, we'll talk more about this topic again, I'm sure, and then maybe we can jump into some more uh, political things or or whatever. There's the conversation will continue because there's still more to talk about and. We want to encourage you as much as possible to not wring your hands. That's not necessary. Um, So for the next time we talk, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. Um, A review goes a long way. Obviously, share it with a friend. Send questions. If you have questions about today, um, our conversation from today, or just questions in general, send them uh, to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. You could even leave an audio question at speakpipe.com slash podcast, and maybe we can use that in a future show. And otherwise, we look forward to the next conversation. Oh, so, so.